Last week, I started my talk by mentioning some things that had made the world feel unstable a week prior, like, for instance, the North Korean nuclear threat on Guam, the events in Charlottesville that were fueled by white supremacist racism. By the way, I want to just say something real quickly here. I want to condemn in the most, uh, in the strongest possible terms, racism in all of its forms. It is sin. There's nothing else about it. It is sin for you to think, for anybody to think, That the color of their skin makes them better, more superior to someone else is not only foolishness, but it's sin. And it needs to be repented of. And so as a church, that's what we have to say about the events in Charlottesville, especially by those that were white supremacists that were promoting much of the danger, much of the issues, and all of the racism that was happening there. So last week we talked about some of these things that were causing the world to feel unstable the week before. But you know, there's a lot of things this week that happened that made the world feel unstable. Tremors from Charlottesville have continued to rumble this week before we even had the opportunity to really process all of what happened there. On Thursday, 14 people were killed and more than 100 injured after two Vans driven by members of ISIS plowed into people in the Spanish cities of Barcelona and Cambrils. And then on Friday, an attacker shouting Allahu Akbar stabbed at least eight people, killing two in the, in the Finnish city of Turku. And I'll tell you, as I watched the coverage of these tragedies, one security analyst said something that was fascinating. And I'll quote it. He says this. He says, I think we have to be philosophical about the fact that this is the new normal unfortunately, that we live in. Now, here's why I bring this up again this week. The turbulence and the instability of the world doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Maybe that security analyst is right. This is, maybe this is the new normal. What if he's right? Could you experience peace in the midst of so much turbulence? And do the people of God have any resources that those who are outside the family of God don't have that enable us to experience peace no matter what our circumstances? Pastor and author by the name of Tim uh, Tim Keller once wrote this. He said, what makes life good is not a particular set of circumstances, but how the heart interacts with them. It's a nice quote, isn't it? But I wonder... How many of us this morning really believe it to be true? How many of us have ever really experienced the goodness of God, the goodness of life, peace, even in the midst of turbulence? I wonder how many of us have experienced that. For those of you who are new to City Church, we're wrapping up today a series that we've been in for the last five weeks on the book of Habakkuk. And I got to tell you, earlier in the year, when I first planned on doing this series, I had no idea how fitting this series would be for us today. Because the question that the prophet Habakkuk answers today in chapter 3 is simply this. Is there a way to be at peace in the middle of terrible circumstances? So on a national and international level, with all of the instability around me, can I be at peace? And then on a personal level, whatever you might be going through today, whatever your circumstances are, is there a way to be at peace in the middle of them? Whatever they are. For instance, those of you who are parents, uh, here's the deal. Those of you who are thinking of having children, you, you just need to know this. As a parent, you are only doing as well as your least well child. Isn't that true, parents? Raise your hands if you agree with that. Yeah. 
Doesn't matter the age. You can be a newborn with colic or can be a 22-year-old with a college degree and no job. It doesn't matter the age. You're only doing as well as your least well child. For those of you with substantial investments in the stock market, does it frighten you that all of your investments are in this place that is based purely on emotion? Does that frighten you? Today, it's, today the stock market is up because unemployment is down, but tomorrow it's going to be down because interest rates went up. I know some people whose whole well, sense of well-being follows the ups and the downs of the market. Does that frighten you? Those of you who are conflict-averse, like, you know, you, you just, you hate conflict. Do you find that your stomach goes in all kinds of knots when you have to visit your family because you know all of the conflict that's going to happen when you go there? Habakkuk, here in chapter 3, addresses the issue of peace in the midst of terrible national circumstances and international circumstances. But the same principles apply to peace in the midst of your personal circumstances as well. Is there a way to live in peace with joy in the midst of whatever circumstances you find yourself in? That's, that's the question. And let me just revisit for a moment the circumstances that prompted Habakkuk the prophet to, uh, prophet to record this book. It all starts with Habakkuk's anxiety as he watches his country plunge into staggering moral decline. He asks God, why aren't you doing anything? And he gets back the answer that God is indeed doing something. And he's going to use the ruthless Babylonians to discipline his people. They're going to tear through the nation like a hot butter through, uh, like a hot knife through butter. And they're going to carry the people off into exile. And it's going to look like a desolate wasteland. Frightening stuff. Frightening stuff. If there were ever a man who could have legitimately used a Xanax or two, Habakkuk would have been that man at the beginning of this book. And who could blame him? Let me ask you something. What if you woke up tomorrow and you looked at your phone or your computer, whatever it is that you do when you first wake up in the morning. For me, it's always my phone. I'm looking through my Twitter feed. What's, go- what's going on in the world? What if you woke up tomorrow, you looked at your phone, your computer, the newspaper, whatever, and there was a notification for whatever news agency that you follow that ISIS had attacked the United States and that it had taken over Washington, D.C., and that their leaders have said that they're planning to storm through America, and you actually watch video on your phone, on your iPad, whatever. You watch video, video of them cutting off the heads of Americans, slicing the throats of Americans, hanging people, throwing people off of skyscrapers, abducting women and children to send them off to Syria. What would you feel? Okay, that's what Habakkuk is feeling. That kind of terror, that kind of anxiety, that's where he's at at the beginning of this book. But if you will, I'd like for you to open your book, uh, open your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk chapter 3, and I want you to see something that I don't think that you can explain naturally. In fact, I'm certain that you can't explain it naturally. Habakkuk chapter 3 I'm going to start at the end of the chapter. I'm going to work my way back. So I want you to find chapter, Habakkuk chapter 3 in the Old Testament, verse 16. Those of you who are regulars here, who don't bring a Bible. Let me tell you, I understand when visitors don't bring a Bible. But I do not understand when those of you who are regulars here don't bring a Bible. Because you know every week I'm going to do this. I'm going to have you turn in your Bible to a particular place. And if you don't start bringing your Bibles every week, I'm going to start every sermon like Joel Osteen. And I'm going to make you hold your Bible up in the air. And I'm going to say, this is my Bible. You're going to have to repeat after me. And it's, I am what it says I am. I'm going to do that every week if you don't start bringing your Bibles. 
Are you going to start bringing your Bibles? Yes, good. Okay. Habakkuk starts with uh, confusion in chapter 1, then frankly terror. In fact, look at how he describes himself in verse 16 of chapter 3. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Now stop there for a second. Do not read ahead. Do, do, Do not read ahead. You get this, right? I mean, like I said, if you knew ISIS was coming, wouldn't that be a pretty apt description of what you would feel? But here's the part that is just unexplainable to me by any natural explanation. Verse 17. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, And there are no grapes on the vines. Remember, this is an agrarian economy. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Now, wow. Just wow. Would you agree with me that this man has taken a remarkable spiritual journey to get to this place? Would you agree with me on that? And would you also agree with me that if we could figure out what happened to Habakkuk, and if we could find a way to monetize it, we would never have to take an offering again at this church. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, everybody wants that kind of peace. How did he get from anxiety and terror to patience And peace and joy. And wouldn't you like to be able to stare down the worst of circumstances and still be poised in the midst of it? I want to show you what Habakkuk didn't do today. I want to show you what Habakkuk did do. And I want to show you how you can do it too. So what he didn't do, what he did do, and how you can do it too. And I want to start with what he didn't do. And I think the most obvious thing that he didn't do is that he didn't change his circumstances. Because, of course, he can't change these circumstances. Some things are completely out of our control, just as this is. God has decreed it, so it's going to happen. Habakkuk says in verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled. There you have it. Now look, there, there are many things in life that cause us to suffer that we can change, right? And if you can change your circumstances to relieve your suffering, do so because you don't get any spiritual brownie points for self-imposed martyrdom. But there are all sorts of circumstances that bring terror and tumult into our lives that we can't change. There are going to be times that come into your life that are going to make your heart pound and, and your legs tremble. And there are going to be times in which life brings you to your knees. What then? What are you going to do then? Philosophers have this very uh, fancy word. And it's the word epistemology. And simply put, epistemology just asks you this question. How do you know what you, believe, what you know? On what basis do you believe what you believe? It's our nature to base our knowledge of God on our circumstances. In other, words, in other words, as he says, when there are grapes on the vine and sheep in the pen, then God is good and loving. But if not, like if there are no grapes on the vines and, 
and there's no sheep in the pen, then God must be bad. And he must not love me. But I want you to know that if that's, if that's the way that you base your understanding of God, there is no peace in that, none, none whatsoever. Because reality says that no matter how good things are going for you today, things can change completely tomorrow. And so your peace and your enjoyment of life are always vulnerable to circumstances. Yet here is a man who can't change a single thing about his circumstances. And yet he's judging those circumstances by what he knows about God rather than judging God by his circumstances. In fact, it's, it's sort of like he's saying this. I am so filled with sorrow. I'm weeping uncontrollably. I can't stand on my own two feet and I am filled with peace. Those things seem contradictory, don't they? But Habakkuk says, he says, no, they're they're, they're not contradictory at all. And it's because of his epistemology. What is his epistemology? How does he get to that piece? Well, I'll give you the answer to that in just a minute. But I want you to see one more thing that he didn't do. He didn't change his circumstances because he couldn't. But I also want you to see this, that he didn't airbrush reality. He doesn't, he doesn't airbrush reality. He didn't, he didn't sugarcoat reality. He's coldly clinical about what is to come. We saw it in, in verse 16. He's scared. He's terrified. His lips are quivering. His knees are knocking. Verse 17, look at it. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Do you understand what he's describing here? He's describing total societal and economical collapse. This is an agrarian society. No grapes, no olives, no sheep, no cattle. This is a worse economic failure that he's describing than the Great Depression in the 1930s. And I want you to see there's no airbrushing reality here. No making it seem like it's going to be better than it is. It's very honest what he says. It's very real. It's, very, it's, it's reality that he's describing. It's, it's, it's clinical. It's cold. It's just right there. Have you ever been around someone, like have you ever been around person, a person who is always optimistic? You ever been around someone like that? Like they're into positive thinking all the time? Like that, it is so frustrating to me to be around people like that. Do you know anybody, you know anybody like that? I mean, not just a little optimistic, but always optimistic. These people are all over Facebook. Man, they love Facebook and they have all of these cliches. Like here's one. Shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. That's not true. I am sorry. That's nonsense. There are times that you crash and burn. Or, you know, here's, here's one. Here's, here's one that you often hear. Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Oh, yeah, there's another saying that goes like this. He's too dumb to know to come in out of the rain. Right? These are cliches that people use because they can't just say, they can't just speak reality. I, I, I read a, a few years ago, I read a fascinating article by a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. And it was on America's obsession with positive thinking. And in the article, this column quoted a liberal essayist by the name of Barbara Ehrenreich, who had, a written, uh, who, who had just written a book, and it was entitled, listen to this, listen to the title, Bright-Sided... How the relentless promotion of positive thinking has undermined America. Listen to what she says in this article. Tony Robbins is going to hate this. She says, 
positive thinking may be a quintessential American activity associated with both individual and national success, but it is driven, listen to this, by a terrible anxiety. And do you know why? She goes on to say this. This is a liberal essay. She's no friend of Christianity. She goes on and she says, we are a society that is all sail and no anchor. Here's a liberal essayist who is saying what we were just talking about a moment ago, that if you don't have something that you can hold on to, an epistemology to base your life upon, an anchor in the storms of life, there's no peace. And those of you who are always optimistic, I want to ask you something. What's the basis of your optimism? Those of you who say, oh, it's going to work out. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, it just always does. It always works out. Uh, Let me tell you something. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes things are bad. And we're back to epistemology, you see. What's What's the basis for your optimism? Tell me, where do you get the idea that things are always gonna work out? That's just wishful thinking. I hate to say it. Don't please don't judge me for saying this, but sometimes life sucks. And sometimes we just need to be able to say that. Habakkuk isn't airbrushing reality. He's not sugarcoating it. He's giving it to you like it is. But I want to tell you something. If your optimism is just based on wishful thinking, you're going to be woefully unprepared when the Babylonians come for you, and they're going to come. You know, that old, uh, you know the cops uh, show, and you know how... What's that little, uh, you know, uh, song, what you're going to do when they come for you? What are you going to do when the Babylonians come for you? What are you, you going to base your optimism on? If you are just basing your optimism on wishful thinking, you're going to be waylaid when the Babylonians come, when real life comes, when it hits you and it's going to hit you. Look at what Habakkuk says, though, in verse 19. He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Unlike the optimist who's going to be brought to his knees by suffering because he doesn't have any epistemological basis, Habakkuk is saying that this suffering that he's going through is actually pushing him to new heights. He says, I'm growing. I'm, I'm rejoicing even in the toughest of times. It's like I'm, I'm walking on mountaintops. He, he's saying, I'm, I'm as sure-footed as a deer. I'm not about to slip and to fall to my death in this. I mean, God is using this in my life and I'm growing. He knows this is going to be bad. And yet there's hope because the sovereign Lord is his strength. And again, those of you who are optimists, Based on wishful thinking and wishful thinking alone, I'm going to tell you something. Life is going to hit and you're going to be waylaid when it does. Those of you who are, maybe you're young and you you think to yourself, I can't imagine that life is ever going to bring me anything tough. Look around the room. Look at some of the older people around the room. Look at the gray hair. Look at the wrinkles. The bags under their eyes. Those are all battle scars from real life happening to people. It happens. Real life is going to hit you. And on what basis are you believing, well, it's just going to work out? Because sometimes it doesn't work out. But Habakkuk says, man, for me, 
These tough times have come. It's like I'm walking on mountains right now. So what was the basis for Habakkuk's hope? How does he make this incredible change from terror and anxiety to to peace without the circumstances having to change and without having to ignore and hide from reality and, and airbrush reality? What makes this change? Well, I want to talk about what he did do. We've talked about what he didn't do. Let's talk about what he did do here. Let's go back to the beginning now of chapter 3. Go back to the beginning of chapter 3, back to verse 1. And I want to see if we can determine what the basis for his hope is. What's his epistemology? What's the basis for what he believes, for what he knows, for what he hopes? Chapter 3, verse 1, you'll notice it says it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. He's turned this uh, chapter, he's turned this into, into a prayer. And he says, uh, on Shigianoth, and that's a weird word, but that word Shigianoth, I want you to pay close attention to this. It means uh, it's a song. So he's, he's written a prayer, and he is turning this into, into a song that uh, is to be sung in Israel's worship. So like in their temple, when they have their, you know, their worship band up, this is something that they would sing. Look at verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then, the remaining verses, from verses 3 to 15, they're a, they're a poetic description of the Exodus. You remember the story of the Exodus? Remember, anybody remember the story of the Exodus? We, we're not going to read all of this, but I want to just highlight a few verses so that you can see that this is a poetic recapitulation uh, of the Exodus, okay? So, uh, verse 3, God came from Taman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, raised flash from his hand where his power was hidden. He's describing meeting with Moses at Mount Sinai. Plague. Anybody remember plague? Does that ring a bell? Exodus, plague. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. Does this sound vaguely familiar to some of you about the Exodus? Okay. Skip down to verse 13. It says, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. Who was this anointed one at the time? It was Moses. You crushed the head of the land of wickedness. You, step, you stripped him from head to foot. Who's he talking about? Pharaoh. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, you guys remember as the, as the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea and they got on dry land, the, the uh, army of Pharaoh, they all came out after the uh, Israelites. What happened? It says, it says they, they came out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. But you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. And they were, remember the Egyptian army was, was uh, they, they all drowned in the Red Sea. You guys remember that? Any of you? This is a description of the Exodus when God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And what I want you to see is that this is the basis for this change that Habakkuk makes from chapter 1, from the terror and the anxiety that he felt, to the end of chapter 3. And so here's what, let me just say it clearly, here's what Habakkuk did do. He reminded himself of God's supernatural deliverance of Israel at the Exodus. He reminded himself of God's supernatural deliverance of Israel at the Exodus. 
So as he rehearses, as he sings, as he reminds himself of the Exodus, he's encouraged that God will not abandon his people. I said this a few weeks ago. uh, The late British pastor, Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said to his congregation, he said this. He said, do you realize that much of your unhappiness in life is because you spend too much time listening to yourself and not enough time talking to yourself? In other words, he's saying... You spend too much time listening to those voices in your head that tell you all hope is lost. Or this is terrible. Or this failure is fatal. Well, Habakkuk isn't listening to those voices. He's singing truth to himself. He's preaching to himself that if God delivered us as a nation at the Exodus, he's not going to abandon us now. Okay, this is what Habakkuk does. Now, this is where it gets really, really fun. I love this stuff. This is where it gets really, really fun. Let me ask you a question. Why the Exodus? Why is he rehearsing the Exodus? I mean, like there were other times in Israel's past where God came through for them supernaturally. Like there were many other times, like like Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. Why isn't he rehearsing that? Or uh, Samson and the Philistines. David and Goliath, uh, Gideon. There are all sorts of these supernatural deliverance stories in the Old Testament. Why did he choose the Exodus and not those? Well, let's let's just play for a minute. Let's just play just for a minute here. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you some hints. And I want to see if you could guess the answer to why he's rehearsing the Exodus and not these other stories. Here's hint number one. I'm just, I'll give you more as, as we go, okay? And you don't have to shout the answer out because, like, this isn't a game show or anything, but you could just kind of guess inside, to your, inside your head to yourself. Here's the first one. The children of Israel were in slavery and bondage. Okay, that's your first hint. Here's the second. They didn't have the power to get themselves out. That's your second hint. This is why he's doing the Exodus, not these other stories. Third hint. God came and miraculously intervened by entering history and rescued them beginning to ring a bell? How about this one? Four. They were saved not by what they did, but by what he did. Here's the fifth one. They expressed their faith by putting the blood of a lamb, put that in all caps, on the mantle of their doors. Are you getting it? And number six, the firstborn sons in the homes in Egypt, without blood on their mantle, died. Are you getting it? Do you see why he chose the Exodus and not anything else? The Exodus was the Old Testament picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember uh, back in verse 3, we read it just a minute ago, that uh, he, prayed, he prayed that God would give mercy in the midst of wrath. Where do wrath and mercy come together in human history? On the cross. And so what Habakkuk is doing is that he's preaching what he knows about the gospel To himself. He's saying to himself, look, at the Exodus, God rescued us and made us a nation for a reason. If he went to all that trouble, he's not going to abandon us now. Do you see it? Do you see this? The basis for Habakkuk's peace in the midst of turmoil, the epistemological basis for his peace, is the Old Testament picture of the gospel. Which leads me to how you can do it too. What he didn't do, we've talked about that. What he did do. Now, 
How can you do it too? How can you, how can you move from terror and anxiety to peace like Habakkuk did? Understand something. The gospel, the gospel is the ultimate exodus. Let me, let me run through those hints again, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in New Testament terms. We were in slavery and bondage to sin, just like the people of Israel were. We had no power to rescue ourselves, just like they didn't. God intervened in human history, just like he did in Israel. But he did it in the birth of his firstborn son and rescued us. Number four, we are not saved by what we do, but by what he did. How? By the blood of the firstborn son, the blood of the lamb. And number six, we are given, if we believe in him, we are given life, not death. Do you see? The way that you can get to the supernatural peace that Habakkuk got to is to preach the gospel to yourself. I say this all the time. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel. Rehearse the gospel. Listen, this is what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament about circumstances and God's love. Those of you who, who live your life, your, your epistemological uh, basis for how you know God is based on your circumstances. If they're good, God's good. If they're bad, God's bad. Here's what Paul says. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying on the basis of the cross, the basis of the gospel, no circumstance has to change how you feel about God's love for you in your life. Because of the gospel. Because he keeps repeating it and preaching it. He says that's the basis for his peace. Look at what he says about the basis for our optimism in Romans 8. He says, and we know. Who? Who knows this? People who are preaching the gospel to themselves. People who have believed in Christ and who continue to remind themselves of what Christ did on the cross. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know, we have a basis for our hope and optimism if we believe in Christ. And it's the cross. It's what Jesus did on the cross for us. If God did all that, he's not going to abandon us. He's going to work it all together for good. What's Paul's epistemology? What's the basis upon which Paul of the New Testament is convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God? What's the basis upon which he knows that in all things God will work for the good of those who love him? His basis is the same as Habakkuk. It is the ultimate exodus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like God made the people of Israel into a nation to display his glory, we too have been called according to his purpose to show his glory to the world. City Church, I want you to listen to me. Habakkuk's terror and anxiety turned to peace and joy when he remembered the Exodus. Yours can too. When you remember the ultimate Exodus at the cross, whatever terror, whatever anxiety, whatever worry could turn to peace. You've got to preach the gospel to yourself. Sing the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel. But let me tell you something. The problem with many of us is that we're too busy singing, Oh baby, I can't live without you. You're my everything. And listen, I'm, whatever the you know, latest pop song is, that's what you're singing. And I'm all for pop songs. Great, sing them. But I'm going to tell you something. 
You can live without whoever it is that you're singing about, but you can't live without Jesus. God looks at those of you who are anxious in the room this morning, and he says, I tore my sons to shreds for you. I tore my son to shreds for you. And you're afraid that I'm not going to give you what you need? Listen again to the Apostle Paul. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? But I want to say to you that the source of much of your unhappiness is that you listen to yourself too much, and you talk to yourself, you preach to yourself too little. You say to yourself, oh, my circumstances, they're so bad, God must not love me. You say to yourself, I need to go find a self-help book to make me positive in the midst of difficulty. But I want to tell you that no self-help book, no positive thinking cliche has any basis in reality other than wishful thinking if it's not based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel can give you the certainty, the conviction, the knowledge that if God wanted me so much that he tore his son to shreds on the cross so that I could be part of his family, then there isn't anything that he won't do for me. If he can use the worst travesty of justice in the history of the world for good, then he can bring good out of my circumstances. If God didn't spare even his son because he wanted me so much, there's no reason for me to think that he will spare anything that I need to make it through this circumstance. You have to decide what your epistemology is. Habakkuk's was the exodus. Paul's was the ultimate exodus, the gospel. What's yours? Is it circumstance? Is it wishful thinking? Is it the gospel? If it's the gospel, you have to start preaching to yourself. Start singing to yourself. Reminding yourself of the gospel all day long, every day. When you're tempted to doubt God's goodness, remind yourself of the gospel. When your circumstances threaten to overwhelm you and destroy you, remind yourself of the gospel. When you don't think you have what it takes to make it through whatever your circumstances are, remind yourself of the gospel. And it will be your anchor no matter how rough the seas you travel. But, for those of you who are here today, whose only hope is wishful thinking. Like you've never come to a place where you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I'm not saying this out of malice. I'm not saying this out of pride. Because I was in the same place. But I want you to know something. That if you don't, if you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your hope, whatever hope you have, It's just wishful thinking. That's it. The only way that you can have the certainty and the conviction and the knowledge that it's all going to work together for good is through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was what he did at Calvary on a cross over 2,000 years ago that demonstrated That God loves you so very much that he takes you just as you are and that he put his son up on a cross and paid the punishment for sin so that you didn't have to. Some of you you are thinking to yourself, okay, you know, I've heard this. Someday I'm going to do that. I'm going to clean my life up and I'm going to 
believe in Jesus, well, then you don't understand the gospel because that's not the gospel. The gospel is that you couldn't clean your life up. I can't clean my life up. That God accepts you just as you are, the hound of heaven. If you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus, the hound of heaven is in this room right now and he's after you. He's nipping at your heels because he wants you. He wants a relationship with you just as you are today. Whatever you're involved in, whatever you're doing, he wants you right now, today. Let him worry about changing you. But he wants you right now. And that's the only epistemological basis for hope that it's all going to turn out okay. If you don't have that, When the Babylonians come, you're going to be waylaid. Would you bow with me for prayer? And if you're one of those people that have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, this would be a good time to do it today. Don't wait. Don't, don't tell yourself, you know, I'm going to clean my life up or something. Don't do that. The Lord Jesus Christ at the cross took God's wrath And demonstrated God's mercy at the same time for you. He was punished so that you would not have to be. This would be a great time to acknowledge to the Lord, yes, I'm a sinner. And I believe Christ died on the cross for me. Make him your hope. Those of you who know Christ, Preach the gospel to yourself right now. Right now. Whatever circumstances are in your life, preach the gospel to yourself now. And Lord Jesus Christ, would you bring people who don't know you, who haven't believed in you, would you bring them to a place today of belief? Lord, for those who know you, let us be a people that continually preach the gospel. Forgive us for, forgive us for forgetting it. Forgive us, forgive us for conflating it to ignoring it reducing it to just a a moment in time when we believed in you that doesn't have any relevance to us 20 years later 30 years later Lord forgive us remind us that it's as relevant today the cross as it ever was and it is the basis for our hope and Lord as a result of that Lord would you make us a people that to the rest of the world demonstrate an unnatural supernatural peace based upon the cross. And we pray these things now. Thanking Lord, you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for us.